0: How long you been, Seventeen? I am a vampire,
1: and you (laughs) are mortal. (laughs) Hello and welcome to This Podcast Sucks.
0: The show where we take a bite out of the vampire genre.
1: We'll be following all manner of fanged fiends through the past 127 years of film and television.
0: From Nosferatu to Twilight, I'm your host Tara,
1: and I'm your host Elliot. And this week we'll be covering *Mark of the Vampire*.
0: Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I know you've been excited for this one.
1: <laughs> yes, I have been excited because this is a weird one in a few ways. Um, yes. Yeah. So to give this a little bit of an introduction, um, this film was released in 1935 it was directed by todd browning and written by guy endor and bernard schubert um, and produced by todd browning and ej Mannix. yeah and this is our second browning film that we've covered i believe
0: that surprised me so much when i saw he directed it because Mm -hmm. i thought after everything i heard about his behavior on the set of dracula that he would never be returning to this genre again
1: but um you know we
0: all need a paycheck so who knows
1: <laughs> yeah and yeah in terms of onset behavior there there seems to be a pattern um it might be it might be safe to say that perhaps todd browning was um not a team player
0: <laughs> oh no um, oh i can't yeah. wait for you to get into
1: it <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> um cool well I feel like we've said this a lot, but this film has some really interesting similarities to last week's film as well, Vampire yeah. Bat. Yeah,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. and I think we're also kind of in an interesting period with Hollywood film and the vampire film genre and how we've kind of yes. had the big, the big names come out and mm-hmm. set a precedence like Nosferatu and Dracula, but now we're kind of in the... Oh, these these things make money, so yes, let's get them yeah. out
1: there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you're right; they have figured out that these things are popular, that these things can make money. So we are seeing some trends and patterns appear, and one of them is the presence of Lugosi. Um, <laughs> so this is our second film with Lugosi in it, and we have, I think, at least three more um, with Lugosi, where he either plays a vampire or Dracula himself, um.
0: Yeah, well, I think he's only played Dracula on screen twice, obviously in Dracula, and then the second time was in Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, I believe.
1: Fascinating, okay, because we're also, so maybe, maybe it isn't Lugosi, because I know that, um, sneak peek, we have, um, we have the son of Dracula and Dracula's daughter on yeah, our on our so, docket soon.
0: I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I could have sworn he's only actually played Dracula twice, but I guess we'll see.
1: Maybe those are just, maybe, maybe historians are like the, the others were so <laughs> bad that they haven't even like made it into the record or something.
0: <laughs> or, or maybe that, you know, he's not even in those films. They just talk about him off, you know, he's a... He's a presence only spoken of.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, so for Mark of the Vampire, um, I think I'm a little I, I'm, I'm trying to decide where to start with this, because <laughs> a lot of what's most interesting about this film is the, the facts around it in terms of um, its production history and, you know, where the story came from and the legacy of the film. So it's like, do I, do we start there? Do we start with the movie itself? Um, I think we should probably Um, start with the movie itself. um, Because it's another short one. It's an hour long. Um, It's really interesting how short films used to be. Um,
0: Yes, it is. And oh my god, I'm just picturing an audience now. Or, like, an audience from the 1930s, like, having to sit through Dune Part 2 or something and just... Oh, they
1: would riot. They would actually riot.
0: <laughs> they probably would. Well, like, first their brains would melt. Their brains yeah. would melt. Um, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that too.
0: They would have no idea what's happening. Yeah. Um, uh yeah so do you want to um so i you know far more about this than me and i'm excited to hear about all the the tea essentially and behind the scenes (laughs) stuff but um, yeah wherever you want to start do you want to start with just the what the movie's about
1: um the film is about a series of deaths and attacks by vampires um that bring in the eminent expert professor Zelen to the aid of Boratin? boratin Boraton um, who is t- <laughs> about to be married her father Sir Carol died from complete blood loss with bite wounds on his neck and it appears he may be one of the undead now plaguing the area um, mm. so this is um, this is a mystery film this is more of the you know it's described as a horror film um, which I think is one of the things that we'll discuss um, because I don't know. But I would necessarily agree that this is a horror film. I think in some ways this is a bit more of a, a detective, like yes. a mystery detective crime thriller. Yeah. And I,
0: and I think that was a popular genre around that time, the detective mm-hmm.
1: film. So
0: I would agree with that.
1: We love crime <laughs> in our, in our we media. We love a good crime. <laughs> yes, we do. So this film stars Lionel Barrymore as Professor Zellin. Elizabeth Allen as Irina Boruton. <laughs> I'll, I'll land on a pronunciation eventually.
0: Whatever's easiest. Yes.
1: <laughs> Bella That's Lugosi. how you should go
0: about pronouncing names. Whatever's easiest.
1: Yes. Just go for it. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's the commitment that counts. Um, so Elizabeth Allen as Irina Boruton. Bela Lugosi as Count Mora. Lionel Atwill as Inspector Newman. Jean Herschelt as Baron Otto von Zinden. And Carol Borland as Luna, who is a really interesting character in, in a lot of ways. This is our first female vampire. This is our first woman vampire that we've covered so far. Well, um,
0: actually, the first female vampire we covered was in Vampire
1: oh my god you're right so true you're right that was a female vampire i'm totally wrong how could i forget that um (laughs)
0: well i I mean was her presence as memorable as this one i would say no yeah
1: this is the first she's really she is vamping hard she (laughs) is
0: vamping hard and the whole time i'm watching her i'm just kind of thinking like i'm curious to know like did did she set the precedent here because i wouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. because i feel like so many subsequent depictions of or on-screen depictions of female vampires it's like they have to have long black hair they have to yeah. be ghostly pale they like mm-hmm. i can't think of too many like blonde or redhead or whatever hair color female vampires. Yeah. so i think like um yeah her look rosalie. is rosalie very... <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's rosalie rosalie and of course Bella like, thinks she's shallow and terrible because spells the brunette so um
1: yeah Esme is also blonde and she likes Esme I
0: think yeah like Esme has like caramel hair she says yeah, yeah it's, are they it's... all blonde well no Alice has like the black pixie okay. hair yes. which yeah. you know she has very short hair so mm-hmm. she's quirky um yeah
1: so, she's quirky yeah she's the weird she's one she's quirky
0: all right yeah. uh but yeah no her look is so distinct and yeah I, I would not be surprised at all if this is kind of what established or influenced all the majority of like subsequent or the right. idea i guess i should say yeah. of what a female vampire
1: should look like yeah well we'll get into it because you are correct that there are things about luna's character that like cast a shit like a casting a shadow sounds <laughs> sounds negative and vampires don't have shadows um True. but she um there were things about this performance that influenced future films um and and films um at that time that were yet to be made but one thing that's cool about um carol um borland who played luna is that she had actually worked with lagosi on the stage production of Dracula, oh, um, yeah, okay. and and when she auditioned, she did not know that Lugosi was affiliated with the project. Oh, that's and, fun! <laughs> and when she found out, she didn't tell the producers that they'd worked together before. Um, <laughs> they're just yeah, they're just gonna be like,
0: wow, they seem really friendly on set. <laughs> or or they, I don't know. I hope they have yeah.
1: a good working relationship. <laughs> I think they had an okay working relationship. I think what was maybe more the case and that we can get into it was that they were incredibly impressed by how well she was able to emulate the body work and the body mm. language of Lugosi. Um mm. And I think that she just kind of yeah. let them believe that she was that good and that she didn't really say anything about the fact that they toured together for like presumably months. Um,
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah. There Lionel Atwill, who plays Inspector Newman, I think that this is um, hilarious and, and part of the whole gossip <laughs> of it all. He was convicted of perjury and given five years of probation What? for allegedly hosting an orgy at his home, oh which led God. him to be blacklisted from Hollywood. Um, That's wild.
0: And, yeah. you know, for, you know you know Babylon's a wild movie but it wasn't necessarily off the mark when it comes to the kinds of parties being thrown around that time
1: (laughs) yeah and it's really interesting because he was not the only person in this cast to go on to be blacklisted from the industry because Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Allen who plays Irina was also blacklisted by MGM because she was a British actress she Mm -hmm. didn't have much success she came to America was hoping to make it big um, and she actually was quoted as um, considering Mark of the Vampire to be slumming it. <laughs> <laughs> and then MGM kept dropping her, promising her projects and then dropping her, and she sued them and won. Good but she was never able to work in America again after that, really, and so she returned to Britain.
0: Yeah, I feel like an, an actor suing a Hollywood studio... At that time period was yeah. pretty much a death sentence for your career. Um, Absolutely. Because for, our, for our listeners who don't know, um, I'm not super well in depth informed about it, but actors at that time could, were under contract to specific studios. So they had mm-hmm. to make whatever films those studios were making. They couldn't go, I don't like the script or the story doesn't speak to me. Like they were mm-hmm. under contract to make a certain amount of films. Regardless, it's kind of like how it is now with the NFL and how sports players are signed to sports. <laughs> teams. Or Marvel. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so there's still, like, you can see yeah. the law um, that carry for a little bit. But um, yeah. Yeah, so.
1: Well, um, that's helpful historical context because it, it, it explains why she sued in a way because like she was contracted with MGM and mm-hmm. they kept promising her projects and dropping her at the very last minute. So mm-hmm. the, you know the she was if she was only allowed to work with Metro and they kept pulling the rug out right. from under her, like what's she supposed to do? um so those are just some interesting little things. but in terms of um the production um this film, so let me see well, one of so it's one thing that's interesting about this film is that it's actually known. Um, more so for being a an unnamed remake of a prior work of Browning's called London After Midnight. Um, oh. So a lot of the information oh. when you look into this is that Mark of the Vampire is considered a, a remake of London after midnight, even though they never mentioned any sort of relationship there. I think we'll we'll hold back on that though. <laughs> more more to come on London after uh, midnight.
0: No, I'm uh, excited to talk about that. That's a very yeah. famous lost silent film.
1: Yes, and we're gonna yeah, we're gonna talk about how it was lost and um, you know, some of the we have lots of we have lots of cataclysmic fires to discuss in the future. <laughs> oh boy. Um, yes, some, some really sad, um, things, some sad things, but in terms of the actual production of the film, um, some, some goss on Todd Browning, makeup artist, Bill Tuttle gave the quote, the crew and I didn't like to work for director Browning. We would try to escape being assigned to one of his productions because he would overwork us until we were ready to drop from exhaustion. He was ruthless. He was determined to get everything he could on film um yeah and he wow yeah and he also apparently had a nasty attitude where if he didn't like your performance for take he would come up to the actor and kind of pretty rudely tell them what they'd done wrong and then as he was walking away he would mutter under his breath about how other actors he worked with would have done it better and he would name drop them as well um, so it which is really really unprofessional to to be honest yeah
0: this podcast is
1: making me like dislike Todd Browning more and more yeah it's like we're he's a really really famous really famous director and then mm-hmm. you learn on it like very minor like we don't really we've only heard about two productions of his and we've had like pretty limited You know, quotes from people who were there, but everything that we've found so Mm -hmm. far is that he was a tyrant. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And that he really overworked people, gave very Mm. little, and expected quite a lot in return. Um, So, not really just doesn't sound like he created a good environment, either professionally or artistically.
0: Mm -mm. No, not at all.
1: Yes. And so um, another interesting thing about the production process for this film was that the ending of the film was hidden from all of the actors, including Lugosi, um, because Browning feared that it would negatively impact their performances. And we are also <laughs> keeping the ending of the film hidden <laughs> um, by, by talking yeah. about it this way. Uh-huh. So... Let's just—I guess now is a good place to just dive into the story, so we yeah. can talk about this ending. Um, Let's and these, do it. All these secrets. Our film mm-hmm. opens on a pretty classic, at this point, kind of um, creepy old woman in a creepy graveyard. <laughs>
0: yes, I loved. I loved the the spooky graveyard and yes. fog machine, fog, and everything, and it's
1: yeah. Just- And there's, like, a zombie hand or something (laughs) that comes out of nowhere and grabs her. Oh, yeah.
0: It's it's great.
1: Yeah. But we do – this is a very familiar – we kind of tread some familiar ground here where we have a very domestic moment of um, working women kind of, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in that kind of um, space where it's, like, kind of like a large – kind of back area where there's like cooking and washing happening someone's doing laundry
0: a town square almost kind of
1: i think Um, there's maybe a bit of that but then we go inside a hotel and i think we're in the the kind of uh, the the kind of um not backstage back of house kind of region it's like
0: um Yeah, kind of has like a a rustic in vibe. And so already, I feel like we're, like you said, we're getting kind of these familiar settings with Mm -hmm. um, the locals or as they're called in these films, the peasants.
1: Someone literally calls them poor deluded creatures. Um, Yeah, because this... Yeah, 1935 for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's It's very much the similar thing to Nosferatu and... Dracula, um and to a degree the vampire bat all have this tension of um like the provincial ignorant superstitious people and like the mm-hmm. educated more empirical and rational kind of city folks um mm-hmm. so like that we pretty immediately feel um mm-hmm. but we have the introduction of a death um the the man of the house or you know sir carol has died um and so we have um we have a really really cold bedside manner from who is it the detective who's like
0: yes inspector newman
1: yeah inspector newman is like a man has been killed um no cause for alarm, and and one of the people collapses to the ground and is like very sad, and he says, "Get up." <laughs> um, um, yeah. yeah, and
0: just going back a little bit,
1: I wrote in my notes,
0: "Yes, big flappy bat." Yes,
1: there are bats. Yeah, we've got some. We, we've got we some got, great bats.
0: We, you, yeah, Todd Browning and his flappy bats. Um, so yeah. I think that appeared when the an old woman was walking through mm-hmm. the graveyard. Um, so yes. yeah, we see this bat a lot. I think this is the most on screen, like time we've ever seen devoted to a singular bat.
1: You're correct. <laughs> I think I have later and we spent, we have a lot of bats throughout the film, actually, because mm-hmm. it comes up in my notes much later. Which is interesting because we just did The Vampire Bat. This film has way more bat than yeah. Vampire Bat. I,
0: I, yeah, exactly. I feel like in Vampire Bat, there's a lot of shots of like a collective of bats. Or group mm-hmm. of bats. But this, I, I feel like the, this bat had its chance to shine. And yes, yeah. its presence was
1: a lot stronger. We really feel, we get the full 360 that experience with this film
0: Yes, yeah exactly and uh yeah so going back to what you were saying with the inspector being very cold and detached about this murder was this um this isn't at the end anymore this is at the house right
1: i think so i mean one of the things that we've talked a bit about is that um we have not really like gotten like films have little to no connective tissue at this stage Mm -hmm. you know where like we don't really get that many like like the idea of b-roll of like establishing shots and like interior shots that kind of give you sense of the space Mm -hmm. like entrances and exits to rooms and buildings and locations like those things are very thin on the ground. Like we have very few scenes where we just get a sense of who characters are. You know, there's a lot of times where you don't find out who someone is until several minutes into a scene. Um, So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that sometimes it's like, I have, there are a couple of the films I've kind of struggled to keep track of the locations, but Mm -hmm. yeah, we do move, um, we do move, to the house because i think we um we meet the daughter right we meet Irina. Yes. um yes
0: yeah, so beforehand i think at the house when the inspector the, the inspector is speaking with the doctor and the doctor yes. i believe is the one to say this is a vampire he says Ooh. and i quote for the cause of death real and they're they're all um The inspectors very much, you know, I'm a man of science and what's this about vampires? And I just wrote in my notes, do neck holes mean nothing in these films?
1: It's really funny because in my notes, I have, I find it so charming that we're at this stage of culture where people don't even know what vampires are. Films Mm -hmm. can't get away with that now. Like yeah. you can't like you can have
0: oh, vampire yeah.
1: films now. You can have some quibbling about the lore. You can kind of put your own spin on how vampires are created but you are just not going to get away with a character asking what a vampire is or like, you know, (laughs) it's just not going to happen. So I think it's very sweet in a way that Mm -hmm. that people haven't heard of the two two puncture wounds on the neck. Yeah, just
0: don't set your film in the modern day.
1: Yeah, just Uh. stop making films. Just make all your vampire films (laughs) set before the 1930s. (laughs) That will solve all of the problems.
0: Yeah. That's a whole other very big discussion that can be had, which is how much early Hollywood films did not give a shit about historical accuracy. If they Mm -hmm. did set their films in the past, especially with costumes and things like that. But Mm -hmm. like I said, another story for another day.
1: Well, there's also very little commitment to some of the other elements of realism that that we would um, pay a lot more attention to now. Like, for example, like where films are set, because we've had a few films that are set in Germany, but all of the characters (laughs) have British accents and English names. Um, Oh, I mean,
0: we're still doing that. Yes. We're still setting films. (laughs) Like, I just watched Napoleon recently with Joaquin Phoenix. Like, everyone else having a British accent and Joaquin Phoenix comes in like, I'm a great man, and I will, and it's just, <laughs> <laughs> I will put, I will push there for, like, it's just like, you know, his, his way of talking. No like, I felt has like,
1: a French accent in Napoleon?
0: No, and uh, here's the thing, what? I'm a
1: little, con- it's an artistic
0: choice that I'm conflicted about, because on the one hand, sometimes I do agree that it is distracting when actors try to do accents, um miloš forman's amadeus which is a great film that's like an i love amadeus amadeus is fantastic no one's doing an accent in that movie and it's not like it's not a i mean it takes place in vienna and you don't really notice i mean Uh it's not a, a distractor in any way uh but with napoleon it's so it's just it's like what about one of the most famous french figures in all of history yeah and it, it, it runs into the lay is musical problem a bit where it's, you know, we're dealing with very specifically French topics, things that are, you know, part of French history and everyone is like speaking with a British or Cockney accent. So it's like,
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a little bit yeah. of
0: some, some disson- dissonance there.
1: Yeah, it's definitely – I guess I'm thinking of, like, The Great, you know, which is about Mm -hmm. Russia and and everyone (laughs) has, like, a pretty – Yeah, Yeah, or just like a not, no accent, like more of an American accent. I think some of the characters might even have. I can't, see, it's like you start to watch enough British media and you Mm -hmm. can't tell the difference between American and British (laughs) accents anymore. Well, Um,
0: yeah, I think it works in the great because one, Elle Fanning mm -hmm. can do a very good British accent. And two, I think um, we're... It's so anachronistic. It, 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 it Exactly. That's such a good way of putting it. It is so anachronistic. Um, it it works. Yeah. Um, and I think we, as an audience, would be, again, I think I lean more towards the don't have
1: your cast do accents because
0: I think it just mm-hmm. ends up being distracting.
1: That's, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, yeah. I mean, but it's like, I mean, the, even just that idea of what counts as realism is... Gonna in a lot of ways, it's gonna be as we're seeing, um, kind of site specific to the to the moment in history, and that's also even gonna be viewer to viewer specific because, like, mm-hmm. I know we've talked about how you and my mom are both very aware of whether or not babies are the right age <laughs> in movies. <laughs> Yeah, when they're when yeah. a baby is born, and then it's like nine months old, I can't like I could not age a baby. If, <laughs> like if you put a gun to my head. So that's a kind of realism that like doesn't even matter to me at all. Mm-hmm. But then there are other mm-hmm. things where I'm like, No, that's wrong. That's yeah. Just not and it, right. <laughs> and it like
0: totally goes over my head and you bring it up and I, I, I go, Whoa, I didn't I did not even know that or think about that.
1: yeah so it's you know i think it's that's one of those things like so many aspects of film it's because it's an art and because it's a fantasy um it's really difficult to say that there's ever like a right or a wrong way to do something um Mm -hmm. but anyway mark of the vampire so what's happened is we've had a series of deaths um at this point in film we've had a series of deaths um people have no blood, and then um, this wealthy man, Sir Carol, has died, um, and his young, beautiful, soon-to-be-wed daughter is distraught about this. There's some conversations about, you know, like, what what could have happened, and, you know, some of the people are, like, pretty dismissive of this whole vampire idea, Um, and we're introduced to her um, kind of... Let's call him a well-meaning idiot, is what I have in my notes.
0: (laughs) I just, I had no idea who he was, because I think his name was, it it sounded like an uncommon name.
1: Fedor. Fedor?
0: Fedor? F-E-D-O-R.
1: Fedor. Let's go with.
0: Fedor. I, yeah, I I thought it was a, it was a kind of uncommon sounding name at Mm -hmm. the time, but I was just confused. I, at first I thought, because she was saying father's dead, I was like, is that her brother? Yeah, and I was she, also like, okay. <laughs> again, we run into this, you know, run into this early film problem like with Vampire, where it's just like we don't need to introduce people in a context or anything. Yeah. It's just, its again, it's very stage-like. It's very yeah. theatrical how characters kind of come on screen. There you are. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I think um, the what adds to the confusion is that there's a few scenes where Fedor is there, but doesn't say anything. Like I think the for maybe like, so sometimes it's like, oh, that guy who was in the background of that scene and never <laughs> talked. Um, that happened a lot in the vampire bat. There were a lot of scenes where there were five people, but only two Whoa. ever spoke. <laughs>
0: Yeah, like at the end where we find out who the scientist or doctor has been mind controlling, and we're just like, "Who is this guy?" <laughs> Emil. <he's>
1: like, of <laughs> who course. are you? Oh, how, could I for- how could I forget Emil? <laughs> um, yes, of course. So, how could you forget Fedor? Her- I'm sorry, because Her loving Fedor- fiance. <laughs>
0: Fedor is a Jonathan with slightly more lines. He's he still a sexy lamp. <laughs>
1: He is a sexy lamp. Um, So we have a scene in the carriage. um, And this was another thing where I was like, because they're talking and there's all these people dancing. And he's like, why? Like, look at the peasants (laughs) dance. Are you not amused?
0: I I know. And she just like starts crying and he's like, what's the matter? And I'm like, what is it with these men not recognizing that their female love interests like lose significant people in their lives? And the next day they're just like come on what are yeah. you so upset about
1: Yeah well it's um, like there's no there's not much room for grief um but this but I had a similar experience of this scene where he's like well, like let the festivities you, you know enjoy the festivities and she's talking about her father and yeah. to me I was like this just happened like he is right. really not being sympathetic it turns yeah. out that that scene was actually um, it was a time jump forward of a full year. <laughs>
0: well, oh, okay, because they made that clear in the movie.
1: <laughs> yes, it it doesn't that doesn't get explained until several minutes later because I, I had in my funny. notes, it feels like we've had some sort of passage of time. And then I have a sub bullet mm. that says there was, it was a full year. It just what? took several minutes oh for God. that to get explained. Um, okay,
0: again, you know, I... Yeah. Kind of missing the classic one year later title card appearing. Um,
1: Yeah, we we are. And I mean, it's also, I mean, that's also a stylistic thing because um, now it's kind of a bit of a faux pas or it feels a bit clumsy to have the mm -hmm. first few minutes of a film and then to jump forward a big amount of time where it's like set the movie mm -hmm. where the story is, you know. Um, I
0: agree. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, But... I was just going to say, I really liked, I forget the actress's name, but in the carriage scene um, I thought, you know, she did a really good job at conveying this, you know, her sense of loss felt palpable yeah. when she was talking about her father, and, yeah, gosh, you you don't know what you lost, Metro, with <laughs> coldwin Mare, with this actor. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, they really, they fumbled the bag on Elizabeth, um, mm-hmm. yes, so, and then we get a cat. Oh, kitty, um, We get a nice cat. <laughs> and so um, yeah, so at this point, I have also written down that it feels like we are like speed running the first two acts of Dracula. Um, like we are really, yeah. really hitting some of these very familiar plot beats, but like at, at warp speed, you know.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, because now uh, the what is the, the main female character's name? It, it Irina, is, Irina because now yeah. Irina is living with I, I guess a, a, a male family member or uncle I believe mm-hmm. it's just funny because he said um I wrote down the quote where he says I being her guardian and I'm like this uh-huh. woman is in her 20s um but I know.
1: mean I mean yeah. it's the we're still 40 years away from women having bank accounts at this point
0: yeah yeah I know that's
1: just
0: <laughs> Crazy to think
1: about.
0: Um, Yeah, but uh, she's living with him now.
1: Yes, and I believe that that is Baron Otto von Zinden There's, Um,
0: there's like at least three or four men in this movie who
1: have very similar job titles. I feel, like and they all wear the, they all dress the (laughs) same way. They all look the same. They all dress the same. Plaid three-piece. Well, now whenever,
0: yeah, I'll remember Lionel Atwell now. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes okay yeah with the <laughs> with his with his orgy um yes otto baron otto von zinden um is the one who is like pro it was a vampire who did it he's the one mm-hmm. who's like i think that this was vampires um mm-hmm. and so detective newman is the one who's like Meh, that's <laughs> not science <laughs> um that was a how very can vampire
0: if science
1: yeah how can vampire if science that is a formula that you have identified that will persist through the next 90 (laughs) years of movies oh my gosh
0: um but yes so getting back to this (laughs) sorry we're going on so many tangents we have been
1: we have gone on so many tangents this film Feels like a big tangent, though. I, I have to it really to say.
0: does until like the plot kicks in in the last 10
1: minutes, yeah, like actually the last 10 minutes, yeah, of...
0: <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, we get an inciting incident because I think this is when we get our first um vampire attack because mm-hmm. Fedor, 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 it's called appears. Fedor. <laughs> call him faye
1: because it gives him it gives him some like um some je ne sais quoi <laughs> like
0: yes some... i love that um yeah so faye appears just dis- disheveled right and this is when he says he was struck near a spooky castle
1: oh yes yeah he's like stumbling he says that he feels very weak that he passed mm. out um that it took him i think a few hours to get strong enough to make it back mm. Yes, mm-hmm. and so this is when the idea of like there being a vampire starts to um, gain some traction. So we get introduced to Luna at this point. Um, mm-hmm. The, the and, female vampire. Yes, the female vampire. So, yes. oh, well, okay. So we get introduced to Luna, and um, I don't know if I don't know if her like. I, I the implication there I think is like a father-daughter a little bit of a yes. it's a father-daughter thing that's
0: what I said father-daughter vampire team let's go
1: yes yeah. it's a family business you know
0: <laughs> wow. but yeah so we, we see Vale Lugosi again and yeah the shot of them when we first see them inside the castle is so great again it's, yeah. it's very much like Dracula where we get these kind of introductory shots of vampires and it's just very quiet and they're moving just very slowly yeah and um he he has a noticeable wound on the side of his head he does yeah because i think he's also supposed to be kind of like a ghost and that's how he was killed um we'll talk
1: about that because there's some interesting theories about that wound on his head that's it's never explained within the film where but he has a very noticeable like blood stain yes Yes, Um, and
0: she's walking in front with this beautiful like white long kind of gauze Mm. gown long sleeves like long waist length black hair very striking makeup very pale just like we were saying earlier kind of like what we think of now when we think of like a female vampire um yes and yeah there's a great shot of them going on the staircase with the cobwebs (laughs) and the candelabra and it's like mm, good shot (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes and there's some discussion they, they, you know we got implication that they have like a plan and they're kind of like talking about um it's pretty vague but you know they'll talk about like doing things together yeah
0: um, yeah the, well yes. I remember um as they walk out of the castle the daughter goes off into the mist and mm-hmm. um I think one of one of the uh, a woman from the town or a woman that's visiting the town and her husband are in a carriage yes. or something and I and she screams when she sees her. And i I just wrote, Oh no, she saw a goth.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah. Um yeah, it's it, that's a really, really funny moment because I think that she says, I think that she that Luna says, I've been a good girl all my life, which is a mm-hmm. really funny thing, I think, to say. Mm-hmm. Um, to in this moment where they're like frightened <laughs> of her. And she's like, Don't worry, I've been a good girl all my life. Um oh yeah and it feel, <laughs> yeah exactly it feel, and it's possibly a little saucy because then um i mean there's like like we've talked a lot there's a, a lot of these films have subtext um that can be read in a lot of different ways because then we have a scene um where irina kind of um seduces or entrances um yeah. luna seduces or entrances however you want to see it um Irina through a window and Irina like comes yes. out onto the patio and she Let's, like she sinks yeah. to her knees and yeah, she's like on energy. her knees waiting for luna to like and luna does the like you're describing this really slow walk up to her and in the background like lugosi like D- dracula not dracula not dracula um he's watching and he has this mm-hmm. really intense like look of satisfaction on his face. Um, yeah. It's,
0: it's, it's like, it's so it's queer. It's kinky. Yeah. And- it is kinky. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: a little kinky. It's
0: like, look likes to watch. Um, but-
1: yeah. And, and just the, the, because we've, yeah. And I think this is, this is, is this the first time that we see a woman feed on another woman it's not I
0: believe or is it, it is I well, believe so I don't okay. believe we saw it happen on screen in Vampire, okay. even though there was a female yeah. vampire but yes I think I did put that in my notes okay. that you know this is like again that domestic space being kind of invaded and mm-hmm. that undertone of like um like sexuality yeah or um or coming to the forefront of like Like Mm -hmm. this very kind of buttoned up or oppressed environment, but it's, it's two women.
1: (laughs) It (laughs) is two women. And it's like, and it's very clear, like, there's no kind of, oh, I wonder what's going on. Um, And yeah, and just the body language of it, I Mm. think is, you know, the the fact that she like that she gets down on her knees, I think Mm. is really because we've seen a lot of a lot of things where it's like someone is in a chair and then the vampire kind of leans over them. We've had a few moments in a bed, um, but Mm -hmm. it's definitely I think it's the most, for lack of a better term, it's the most like submissive posture that we've seen Mm -hmm. a victim take um, Mm -hmm. short of just like you know, being unconscious on the ground, which is obviously, mm-hmm. like, the most vulnerable, um, but that's, like, not something that the person is, like, they- they've they passed out, you know, we get that moment, um, and then we have, and then I think that she's kind of discovered, um, and they put her to bed because she's, you know, unwell, um, and... Yeah, I think... <laughs> Oh, well, I just have in my, it's so funny, like, the th- when I look back at my notes, the things that I, like, latch on to, because mm-hmm. I have, like, a whole, like, multiple sentence thing about, like, an absurd set piece that's in her bedroom. It's, like, <laughs> it looks like almost, like, one of those columns from a cheesecake factory, what? but even bigger, it takes up, like, half the room. Oh, my. Um,
0: i Okay, I need to see this again, because I don't remember that. That's so it's
1: really, I mean, it's just—it's literally like that. the background of the shot. It's <laughs> not what you're supposed to be paying attention to. But
0: once yeah. I noticed
1: it, I was like, what is that? Like, whose house looks like this?
0: It wasn't a house. It was a Cheesecake Factory. You know, yeah,
1: of just, course. They couldn't uh.
0: get, like, the rights. So, <laughs> they, just... <laughs> they couldn't get the rights.
1: <laughs> uh. They couldn't
0: show the exterior of the Cheesecake Factory. So. Yes. Yes
1: um all right so this is the point at which we really start talking about we get into the facts here this is
0: yeah the facts and of course it's only the men because as they say you know excuse us poor ill woman like Mm -hmm. while we discuss you know if it's actually a vampire
1: (laughs) yes yeah they um they kind of they send her off to bed with the maid um they do that a lot in these early
0: vampire films yeah they do
1: yeah (laughs) um yeah it's very like it is very like sent is shooing the child away um
0: mm-hmm. oh yeah of,
1: yeah um and the the maid is actually really funny like the maid yeah. kind of has a lot of one, one thing that we haven't talked about is like the comedy of this film yeah. some critics look back on this film as like a satire um and as I a comedic film yeah
0: i love that because i think i i actually thus far in these films i've I laughed a fair bit at mm-hmm. this one, I think. Um, although nothing is ever going to top Lionel Atwell taking out the pill bottle in the Vampire Bat, and it just has a huge label "poison." <laughs> poison I, that that broke me. <laughs>
1: yes. Um, yeah. Um, but
0: I love that interpretation of this film being a satire, and um, yeah, we'll talk about that more when we finish recapping the film. I think.
1: Yes. Yeah. So we have a we have a conversation about like what vampires are. I think they read from like a French monograph or or something. Maybe that was the vampire bat. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there's this quote. There's this quote that I really liked that I pulled out where they say that vampires are. Um, they describe it as a dead alive creature spit up from the grave. Um, yeah, yeah. Which is like and, very and- dramatic.
0: Yes, and a in the vampires, a pestilence that grows, so kind of continuing that connection between vampirism and disease, and uh-huh. you spread vampirism like a plague.
1: Yes, kind of. Um, yeah, I also like that we have this detail of instead of wolf's bane, we have batthorn.
0: <laughs> okay, thank you! I Okay, I write that <laughs> later. That's like a few bullet points down, but I just write, what is batthorn? Because... You know, I listen. I am a Vampire Diaries girly. I grew up on, um, Vervain. <laughs> oh, okay, yes. Yeah. So I I know Vervain. I know Wolf'sbane. You know, and crucifixes. Your classic. What you little things to ward off a vampire. But I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: I think they just wanted to be original. I think they wanted to have their own thing going for them. So they were like, yeah. "Wolf, Bane, Bat, Thorn." <laughs> like, um, because that to me feels like a very transparent, trans, like wolf, bat, like Bane, <laughs> Thorn. Y- you yeah. know, it's like creepy, mm-hmm. like kind of creepy animal, creepy supernatural animal, and then like plant that we have negative. Associate Because Bane is like... There's other plants that end in the, the suffix. Suffix?
0: Yeah.
1: B-A-N-E. Bane. Um, yeah. Bane.
0: Yeah. D- does it grow in the dark? <laughs> I
1: don't know. It could also Oh, I'm be... sorry.
0: That, like... T- <laughs> I, I'm referring to Bane from... The dark oh night, right? yes yes <laughs> that was what so does he bad. say I'm he's so like um, I was raised in the dark or, yes yeah where I he where, yeah
1: now. where he's like you were trained in the dark I was born in the dark oh, yeah God, I'm so <laughs> sorry that's my only
0: association when I hear Bane
1: uh no that's a that's a good I was also <laughs> thinking about Tom Hardy um,
0: <laughs> we we're always thinking about Tom, <laughs> <laughs> Tom
1: Hardy. yes there's always at least a couple brain cells <laughs> devoted to Tom Hardy in this brain at absolutely, least absolutely
0: yes this brings well.
1: We should oh my do God, Venom.
0: <laughs> I remember when we watched Venom. Um, yes, I would love to do Venom. And now I'm just thinking of, like, Tom Hardy as a vampire, but I think the closest we'll ever get to, like, is when he played the bad guy in Star Trek Nemesis, and it almost destroyed his career.
1: <laughs> wow. I didn't even... I didn't even yes. remember... Wow, deep. He hot. would like us not to remember. Yes, he's like, he please like
0: forget. <laughs> don't remember. Yes, no. That's that's a whole thing. But <laughs> the the look is very. It's very like Xenobite from Hellraiser. It's like full, like Ooh. long black leather, high uh-huh. collar, shaved head. Love um, it. He's doing something with it. You know, he he's not bored. I don't I don't think he was bored in that film. So you I give can... props for that.
1: Yeah, you can always trust Tom Hardy to do something. I've never seen a (laughs) Tom Hardy film where he really did nothing with it. Um, Yeah, exactly. He is always putting in an effort. He's similar to Nicolas Cage in that way. Because people make fun of Nicolas Cage. But Nicolas Cage gives 150% to every single performance.
0: He absolutely does. And I think it's important to know that at least my impression is that he's very self-aware about it because I watched the unbearable weight of massive talent recently where he's playing himself Yeah, and and Pedro Pascal is like the big fan that flies Mm -hmm. him out to like visit. And it's so funny. And it really leans into like the Nick Cage memes, how Mm -hmm. Nick Cage sees himself as an actor in his method. And like it, like it's clear this man has no problem, like making fun of this image um, of himself.
1: And he's so. also a true cinephile, like, yes. from what I've heard. He well, is that's, like...
0: yeah, that's the joke in the movie is that his daughter feels distant from him because he only wants to, like, watch the movies he likes with her. And he's like, you didn't like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um yeah but apparently in interviews when they're like what's your favorite movie he'll list something some some black and white film yeah. that no one's ever heard of or some silent film <laughs> that no one's ever heard of
0: oh i love that
1: yeah but um <laughs> returning, sorry, we're returning. Such a
0: tangent
1: podcast no i am terrible this is the one see i'm the one who's kind of chauffeuring us through this movie <laughs> and, and we can blame it on me i'm being a terrible no. guide right no now. you're
0: not i blame it on this
1: movie because this
0: movie yes this movie's a lot of things but you know like the plot is like can we get to it please yes we do like i said last 10 minutes
1: this movie is a lot of things it's possible that it's not good and not interesting (laughs) that's one yeah (laughs) um that might be harsh i think it is interesting
0: yeah yeah i think it's it, it does uh some things In an interesting way. Well, it it introduces stuff. I have to appreciate that it introduces like our first kind of real on-screen female vampire. Yes, yeah. All of that. Girls can kill too. Yeah, girls can have hobbies. Um, And so. uh so
1: wait oh my god where are we in this plot? We, so we, are, they, are they still just
0: like standing around being like it's a vampire
1: they are so they're they are still standing around talking about what vampires are and how they work um we have the line dead alive creatures spit up from the mm-hmm. grave we have batthorn we also have the line each victim that it kills itself becomes a vampire i flag that one because i'm really curious to see when the difference between like draining and turning Mm. comes into the vampire genre because now Mm. we very much have the idea that vampires can drink some blood from a person drain a person of all their blood and kill them and then turn a victim into a vampire and that those are three separate things um Mm. so but Mm -hmm. so far we've we've really only had that like if you are killed by a vampire, you are then a vampire yourself.
0: Yes, there's not just the, they drink all their blood and they're dead.
1: Yes. Um, And then another line, I think this is maybe like the, one of the strongest lines in the film in general is just in terms of like um, the themes of the vampire genre, like because obviously with horror and with vampires, like mortality and death, comes up a Mm -hmm. lot so there's this line there's nothing terrible about death but to live on after death a soul earthbound a vampire you don't wish any such fate for your beloved and I Mm -hmm. believe that that is Zelen talking to Fedor um Mm -hmm. so I thought that was um that was a really beautiful line and it's a really interesting because this is a tension that we've already talked about in prior episodes and that will continue to come up again and again is um, whether or not it is good to die, you know. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. um, and this at this point in history with these films, it's very much a yes, it's natural to die. It is not mm-hmm. a good thing to live on in an mm-hmm. unnatural capacity after that.
1: Mm hmm. And the, you know, the closer we get to this contemporary moment, you know, 2024, the more we see characters who are like, dying sucks, I don't want to die. Um, mm-hmm. So that I think that that's just like a big cultural shift. Um, mm. And, you know, the way that we portray death on screen has changed a lot over, mm. you know, the 120 you know, almost 130 years of film history that we have. Um, Mm -hmm. So now we start kind of like the plot starts kicking in. We have a lot of moments of people getting startled from behind and screaming and stuff. Um, We have a break in, um, we have like the maid is screaming, That's the maid right. and the butler are screaming and, the, and the men come up the stairs and they're like, what's going on? Um, and then there's a, um, it's funny because there's a flashback. We have a flashback to something that happened 90 seconds prior, um, where oh we actually God. have a pretty lovely shot of Lugosi yeah. coming in through the window as a bat. Yes. And in my then, notes, I
0: say, yeah. oh shit, Bela. Yes, there he is. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. Um, and yeah, another bat was, moment.
0: Yes, there, there's there been so many, sh- again, shots of my big old flappy bat. And yeah, um, yeah but this time I think, um, well, actually we'll get into it later when we see a really cool effect of mm-hmm. the vampire bat turning into it. Elliot. I'm sorry, I'm just now realizing my brain is breaking from the fact that I just brought up this moment later in the film but then there's also the ending of the movie so we'll (laughs) talk about that we'll get there (laughs) yeah we'll get there sorry um as you as you were saying
1: (laughs) well so we have this moment and then they continue and then they go back to discussing what's to be done about this because at this point um they've con like everyone has been convinced that this is vampires It's, it's we gotta we gotta kill these vampires um and so then it becomes where they're talking about how do we do this. They have to be beheaded. And then Mm -hmm. a sprig of bat thorn must be stuffed in the wound. Um, So this is a bit of a, it's kind of gross, but this is a bit of a diversion from the idea of staking a vampire through the heart. Um, We have to have a beheading, which Mm -hmm. feels a bit more zombie, a bit more zombie-like for audiences today.
0: It does, but I think it's also, that's also pretty... That that's part of the traditional like vampire lore of how to defeat them. I thought decapitation was pretty standard in terms I of guess, like, yeah. the vampire mythos. Um I could yeah. be wrong, but
1: No, I think it's not it's not unheard of. I think that it's just like the bread and butter is really a stake through the heart, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> um Yes, and so then we had this really lovely shot of Luna watching Arena through the window. Um and that was this film, unfortunately, did not necessarily impress me so much on the cinematography editing mm-hmm. end of things. Um, mm-hmm. We've had a few films where like, yeah, maybe the plot wasn't so great, but there's been some really beautiful cinematography. I did not necessarily feel that way about this film. Um, so, <laughs> oh, I just, I, just, I just, I'm looking at my notes and I just see the bullet I see really beautiful shot of Luna watching Arena through the window, um, and then I have those bitches shot at a bat. <laughs> <laughs> those
0: animals,
1: how did not they my do that?
0: not daddy? Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, so they tried to shoot a bat, and then I guess one of them was like, "You can't kill a vampire in bat form, um, you fool." <laughs> obviously you idiot yes and so at this point everyone has like gone to the abandoned estate of sir carol um and oh my god i forgot to so i forgot to mention that this whole time we've had a couple moments where irina has seen what she believes to be the vampiric version or like the resurrected body of her father like her father's Mm -hmm. corpse So she's kind of seen him playing piano, and then they go, and Mm -hmm. um, the dust is – there's, like, something up where where they're like, oh, look, like, he couldn't have been here. Um, And so then they're – all of them, Newman, Detective Newman, and then um, Irina and Fedor, um, and then – Zinden, yes, okay, so we've got. See, this is where it gets, they need to name people better because yes. we have um. Detective Newman, we have Fedor and Arena, and then we have mm-hmm. um, Baron Otto von Zinden, who Arena is living with. He's the kind of guy who's like, I'm right. the guardian. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then we have Professor Zelen, who is the expert mm-hmm. on vampires, who sh- showed up and was like, Trying to convince at the beginning yeah, he, of the film convince he's kind of like, yeah. He's
0: kind of like the Van Helsing yes. concert character. Um, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah.
0: And at this point has Bela and um the vampire daughter taken
1: Irina to the the castle um at oh. this point? Actually, yeah, I think you're right. I think that she so, has been she's been uh, captured and tied up well
0: yeah and you see kind of the ghosts of um, their their victims and this is when we get that cool effect of vampire or um, the bat flying in and it transforms into the vampire girl
1: yeah that was a great moment mm-hmm. um, and we also have a really lovely there's another kind of actually kind of creepy moment that I really liked where like everyone's kind of exploring around the castle and Zelen and Zinden <laughs> am I getting that right Zelen and Zinden. Uh, yes, yes, Zelen and Zinden are um, are alone in-, in the basement and Baron Otto and Zelen are alone in the basement and they have a candle and they're they're, they're just standing in this doorway by this staircase and their candle gets blown out. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. and when they relight the candle, Luna and the the other vampire are there watching them in the background. And so that was kind of like a fun little like yeah. creepy and a very mm-hmm. classic horror moment. Like it's one of the, the com one of the most common f- types of devices in terms of like the mise-en-scène in horror films is that you leave an empty background that's like waiting for the monster, waiting for the spray of blood, mm-hmm. waiting for the horrific thing. Um so it's really fun to just kind of see those like classic kind of horror moments where like you think that what you're supposed to be paying attention to is the foreground. And then the actually interesting thing is happening in the background. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. So um, this is where I guess this is when the the jig is up. Um, <laughs> because um <drum> roll, Please. <sighs>
0: they're not vampires
1: they're actors (laughs) wow I know mind blown exactly so they kidnap Arena and they get her into their room and And she turns to them and she's like, I just can't do it. I can't do it anymore. Um, He looks too much like father. Yes, this act has gone on too far. Um, (laughs) And, you know, that she's struggling with this because she has Mm. actually lost her father. So they found this lookalike guy. And um, so it turns out that they have suspected um, Baron Otto this whole time. Mm. And that mm. they have been um, trying to get evidence to mm-hmm. arrest him, but they have largely been unsuccessful because remember it's been a whole year, um, and so, and so she's like wants to back out. She's tired. It's very stressful for her, like pretending that her father is still alive when he's not. Um, and so there's this absurd conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> where one of them says to her, our vampire scheme was so simple, so certain to succeed. <laughs> it's like, what
0: are you talking about? It is
1: It is the least simple and most <laughs> unlikely to succeed ruse I've ever heard. You are all idiots, and yeah. you don't
0: know what you're doing.
1: Yeah, you are all fools. Um, so, <laughs> so it's just so silly it's just so silly um and so it's like of course all of this work that i think has been in some way successful to establish these two this creepy father-daughter vampire duo um the odd dynamic between luna and Irina. um Like they they did all this work and now it's just like, well, they're paid actors, which is funny because they Mm -hmm. are paid actors. Um, (laughs) But so it's like, it's the layers where they're actors playing vampires who are playing actors playing vampires. And Um, I
0: guess, you know, they're such good actors. Apparently they can transform into bats and then transform back into humans.
1: (laughs) You, you know, you're so, because the fact that the butler and the maid were not in on this scheme is a massive mm-hmm. plot hole. Because, but just, like, the yeah. scene itself of, of the woman, like, the, the
0: huge effect of the bat turning... like Yeah. The, how? The, what? And
1: yes. it wasn't even
0: in a context <laughs> where you would have to have people think that she was a vampire because it was at the castle with all the
1: actors. Like, yeah. I, and and also, I did Fedor then pretend to have gotten uh, attacked and like because he was like no. I thought he was genuinely think, injured or was he just yeah. faking it
0: I don't know I think Fedor was just an idiot so <laughs>
1: <laughs> he just he just tripped and fell and hit his head and then was like I guess I got attacked I by vampires <laughs> um, i You'd be
0: surprised. Yeah. Yes. No, I like to believe Fedor had no idea what was going on and he's just that that helpless. This <laughs> is <laughs>
1: just that helpless. Okay, so this conversation with Arena happens. The, the whole thing is revealed. So then we cut back to Zelen and Baron Otto. Um, mm-hmm. And so Zelen, as we've established, is our like vampire aficionado, and Baron Otto mm-hmm. von Zenden is the guardian. And so he hypnotizes Zellin, Professor Zellin. And what I have to say is a pretty half-assed hypnosis. Oh like, Zellin is deeply impressionable that this works on him. I think he just, like, I think Otto just kind of moves the candle back and forth in front of his face, and he's like... That's
0: all you need.
1: Yeah. Um, and he's like, oh, like aren't you feeling, like, disorientated? And he's like, yeah, I am. Wait, no, I got it wrong. I'm so sorry. I, I flipped it. Zelen hypnotizes the Baron. Right. Okay. Yeah. Zelen yeah. hypnotizes the Baron. It's still very silly where he just kind of moves the candle <laughs> back and forth in front of his face. And he's like, like, rem- like, um, and he makes him think that it's a year ago, the night of the murder. And he's like, mm-hmm. tell me tell me about it tell me what happened and he um, and he kind of gets him to relive the experience and so they link up with the the Sir Carol look alike the father look alike and they and they take it through the whole thing um, they have the conversation that they had the night he died and then we see him and everyone is like watching around the corner, like secretly watching, including detective Newman. Um, and so we see the Baron um, drug his um, Sir Carol, who he believes to be Sir Carol's wine. I think it is that he's drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then they do a little switcheroo where they give him an untainted drink because they they see that he has... And this is another thing where, like, why did he have... Like, they would have had to plant a bottle on his person or something like that. So anyway, they switch out the drinks so that he can drink the drink um, without actually poisoning himself. And then, in what I thought was, like, fairly convincing, he pretends to pass out and lose consciousness. Um, Mm. And then they see and this was where I was starting to wonder like they can't just watch him like when are they gonna step (laughs) in because then the Baron Mm -hmm. goes in with like a knife or some sort Mm -hmm. of sharp implement and he's about to like make the punctures in the neck um and then Newman comes out of comes out from nowhere and then and Zelen is like wakes him up from the hypnosis Mm. and Newman is like you're under arrest for murder. Um, (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Um, And he essentially revealed it's revealed that he did this to get Irina. Um, Like he had Hmm. planned to marry Irina. um, And the reason that he killed, um, the reason that he killed Carol was because, they were having like a late night drink together. And Carol was like, Irina is engaged to be married to Fedor. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the Baron is like, Irina was supposed to be mine. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, very gross. Yeah. And Sir Carol mm-hmm. is like, that's weird. No, um, So then he- <laughs> <laughs> so then he kills him and um a reasonable reaction yeah of course totally but but in some ways it did work because arena did move in with him and he did become her guardian um
0: so like we can only
1: imagine what he would have done to fedor um
0: yeah exactly
1: yes so because that was probably going to be his next thing Fedor
0: never stood a chance
1: fedor did never (laughs) stand a chance um He's so lucky. He made it through the whole film. Yeah. Um, so yes. yes. So then they arrest him and we get this wrap up kind of moment where, um, what, well, what, I think Irina or something is like, well, how did like, he like, yes, he poisoned him and he made the puncture wounds, but like, how did he get all of the blood out? Um, And he was like, oh, well, like, we stopped him right before he did it, but he did, he was going to do something called blood cupping, um, to, like, suck all of the Mm. blood out of the body. It's, it's, um, it's, like, a legitimate, um, technique. It's called cupping therapy. Yeah, so it's a traditional Chinese and Middle Eastern practice that involves placing cups on different, Mm -hmm. like, points of the body and creating suction. Um... Mm. And so mm. I've done this. It feels amazing. It's like a, it's like getting a massage from the inside. Mm. Mm.
0: Um, OK, yeah, Because yeah. I've seen it in, in movies, but I, yes. I was never quite sure what it was. And it always I, I don't know, I guess it, it looked
1: kind of painful. but it Yeah. Like... So typically, traditionally, the way that it's done is that you have like a glass cup um, that's mm-hmm. like almost perfectly circular. Um, so it's a less sort of like a thing you would drink out of. It's like fully round except for like the flat surface where it meets the skin and you light something like a cotton ball on fire mm-hmm. and you swirl it around in the cup and then quickly apply Ooh. it to the skin. And because mm-hmm. you've burned, because that fire has consumed all of the oxygen, a vacuum is created mm-hmm. and suction is formed against your skin. Um... Mm. And so if you've ever seen photos of athletes, photos or videos of athletes like working out um, or like partially clothed and they have these weird kind of bruises that almost look Mm -hmm. like sucker marks, like like from a giant Mm -hmm. octopus where there's these perfectly (laughs) circular bruises, Mm -hmm. those are cupping marks. And so Mm -hmm. blood cupping specifically refers to a technique where you make a small incision in the skin right before you apply the cup. And so then suction is created and um, blood kind of is pulled out. Um, and so that's kind of what that technique is. So blood cupping is a real thing. Um, you can do it. And cupping is, um, is something that was like a very legitimate kind of like physical therapy thing that many people use. Um, and now you can do it without fire where you can get cups that have a little like nozzle at the end and you attach this like handle that like manually Mm -hmm. pumps it um so you don't have to do it with like a little burning cotton ball um the Mm -hmm. way you would in the past Mm -hmm. um yeah so but the thing that they get wrong is that you cannot drain a body this way like you just (laughs) can't and it would also leave a massive cupping bruise um, yeah. <laughs> so it it's a it's a little bit like but they're assuming that no one knows what that is, you know.
0: Yeah, he he wasn't as you know he didn't pre-plan the way dr otto did in the vampire
1: bat (laughs) yes exactly um anyway in the
0: old-fashioned way (laughs)
1: yes and that was another little bit of a tangent but i just figured if anyone watches this film and they're like what is cupping like that's an explanation it is a real it is a real technique that you can really do i've had it done by a massage therapist it feels really good it has, it has a lot of real benefits, so don't let this movie think, mm-hmm. make you think that it's, like, um, just a weird murder mm-hmm. technique. Um, mm-hmm. But just, you know, I just think that that was, like, a, an unexpected... And I get mm-hmm. that they were trying to be creative. I think it is a really creative explanation for how you would drain a body of blood through only yeah. two small puncture wounds. Right. Um, but then we get to the final moment of the film... Um, and I would say that this is probably the most famous moment. Um, Mm -hmm. all of the actors, the guy who played her father and then Lugosi and, (laughs) um, and then, um, and then Layla Bennett, uh, no, Mm -hmm. Carol Borland who played, so Lugosi, Borland, and then, um, and then the. And then I guess Holmes Herbert, or no, James Bradbury Jr. is the third vampire. They're all packing their stuff up. Luna is taking off her makeup. Um, And Lugosi um, claimed, it gives this line where he says, this vampire business, it has given me a great idea for a new act luna in the new act i will be the vampire (laughs) did you watch me i gave all of me i was greater than any real vampire um and luna (laughs) just kind of rolls her eyes at him yeah and then the film ends
0: a little bit of meta commentary there yes Um, (laughs) very very meta very meta and we also get a similar kind of ending to that's akin to the vampire bat where mm-hmm. it's like we've had all the seriousness before quote-unquote seriousness beforehand and then it ends with this kind of tonally dissonant comedic like we need to end with some levity so yeah
1: <laughs> it's a good parallel and
0: yeah so wow what a twist
1: that what makes a twist! no sense <laughs> makes whatsoever no sense. <laughs>
0: Um, okay, yeah. so yes, please tell me more about, um, I guess, because it sounds like you have some tea about how the actors yes. felt with this decision.
1: Let's and dish. <laughs> all of that, yes, please. Um, they hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of don't blame them. <laughs> yeah, the actors thought it was very silly. They didn't like it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, but in terms of, and yeah, even for the time. The line that Lugosi gives is is pretty meta because at that point he was really known for playing Dracula, and the and that line has really only become more true as the decades have gone by, um, mm-hmm. because you know like I would say that Lugosi's name is fairly synonymous with. The fictional character of Dracula and by extension oh, yeah. synonymous with the vampire film
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and that people myself included know basically nothing about him except that he played Dracula. So um, there there is something sort of um, prophetic mm-hmm. in a way where like he says I gave all of me and it's like, yeah, his legacy has been completely subsumed by Dracula. Yes. And by the fictional IP of the, you know, the intellectual property of Dracula. Um, But, Mm. yeah, so, I mean, I guess, I guess starting with the, starting with the basics of, you know, our impressions of this film, is this a vampire movie?
0: (sighs) Yeah, I, I, mm. It's, it's hard, because I know we had this discussion for The Vampire Bat. Yes, where, we did. A, again, similarly, kind of a twist where it's like, oh, there's no vampires. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I know for that I leaned more towards the side of no, because I, I argued the film was kind of just using the vampire genre as a Trojan horse for the mad scientist mm-hmm. uh, film. Mm-hmm. With this one, I'm more inclined to say yes. I would still mm-hmm. call it a vampire film solely like for the fact that you know there's the like in terms of how um i forget the actress's name who plays the female vampire it is um
1: carol borland
0: carol borland um i feel like her look was so iconic and her Mm -hmm. performance um very memorable that it did become influential i feel like Mm -hmm. in terms of how uh, later female vampires were depicted on screen. So, I mean, that's kind of showing how, you know, regardless of whether the film had an actual vampire in it or not, its um, fingerprints are still seen on uh, subsequent depictions of actual, uh, actual female vampires in film. So I mm-hmm. guess in terms of how it's
1: contributed to the legacy,
0: I would say yes. And um, yeah, that, that would be kind of my main argument
1: yeah, I think that's a I think that's a very sound argument. Last week I said that I thought the Vampire Bat was a vampire movie. Yeah. I mostly said that because I thought that because this film, I think, makes that you know, I was like we're going to have a really <laughs> even more interesting conversation. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. I to be honest, I would kind of I would kind of agree with you. I think that this is more of a vampire film mm. than the Vampire Bat was yeah. because for this we we have scenes where like you see people turned into bats and you see bats turn into people and there's feeding, you know, where -hmm. where someone feeds on -hmm. another person to drink their blood. Um, Or at least there's scenes where like you're led to believe that that's what's happening. Um, Mm -hmm. So I do think that this is more of a vampire film, Um, Mm -hmm. but in terms of its contemporary reception and how audiences felt about it at the time, um, it grossed $54,000 Which is $1.2 million in today's money. Uh Um, I wasn't able to find a budget for the film, though. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard for me to say how financially successful it was. um, Because, you know, obviously, like how much you make in the box office is really not helpful information if you don't know how much the film costs to make to begin with. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like if you, like, you know, for example, black panther grossed over a billion dollars but if they made black panther for 900 million dollars <laughs> then it would yeah. have been a massive failure yeah. but they made it for less than 300 yeah. million so
0: if it had lord of the rings rings of
1: power budget <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah exactly um so and the film so the actors Did not like the twist, but audiences (laughs) did. It worked for audiences. Mm. It was received largely positively by viewers and critics, though Mm -hmm. there is one outlier. And this is a long quote, but it is so amazing that I will read it in full. A very angry letter was written to the New York Times by a doctor. Okay, so here, (laughs) here goes. This is amazing. Quote. A dozen of the worst obscene pictures cannot equal the damage that is done by films such as The Mark of the Vampire. I do not refer to the senselessness of the picture. I do not even refer to the effect in spreading and fostering the most obnoxious superstitions. I refer to the terrible effect that it has on the mental and nervous systems of not only unstable, but even normal men, women, and children. I am not speaking in the abstract. I am basing myself on facts. Several people have come to my notice who, after seeing that horrible picture, suffered nervous shock, were attacked with insomnia, and those who did fall asleep were tortured by the most horrible nightmares. In my opinion, it is a crime to produce and to present such films. We must guard not only our people's morals, we must be as careful with their physical and mental health.
0: Wow.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs)
0: Wow well, one of the reviews of all time um,
1: yeah I mean <laughs> that is
0: that is an angry what is an angry film goer that
1: <laughs> yes um, <laughs> devoted to his patience though it,
0: clearly I mean yeah <laughs> yeah who knows how hyperbolic he's being there but yeah it's interesting to read things or yeah to read things like that and remember you know for as, you know, dated and silly as these films seem mm-hmm. today, they were not <laughs> in the thirties. This 30s. was
1: all new. This was all brand all new.
0: All new. It was all brand new, and you know, I, you know, things like people turning into bats, drinking blood. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, that that was disturbing. That was scary, and mm-hmm.
1: um, hypnosis yeah, the, as a concept. Hypnosis, I'm guessing, yeah, yeah,
0: like supernatural, the occult, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that is so interesting. Where did you find that?
1: This is that is specifically from a book titled Bella Gosi and Boris Karloff, The Expanded Story of a Haunting Collaboration with a Complete Filmography of Their Films Together. Oh, um, very nice. Yes, and the letter was written by William J. Robinson to the New York Times. Um, and it was dated the twenty eighth of July nineteen thirty five. yeah. Well, so that is
0: It's a really cool find, and it's interesting how you said the actors hated the ending of this film, but audiences loved it, and how also some critics consider this film to almost be a satire. And it makes me wonder, like, think about the cycle of vampire films and popularity, and how I feel like every time there's kind of a resurgence in the popularity of vampire media, there inevitably comes like the, okay, now we can start satirizing and making fun of it.
1: Yes. So I wonder
0: if this movie, it's 1935, you know, Nosferatu came out in 27, I believe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Dracula in 31 kind of kicked off this trend in Hollywood. So I wonder if we're coming to that first um, end point in the cycle of vampire popularity where it's like, okay, this is such an oversaturated genre. We can Uh start making fun of it
1: yeah i mean that's a good because the films were produced at such a rate and yeah. at this point we it wasn't just dracula we also had some of the other big monster movies mm. um, that's true mm-hmm. yeah because um because we haven't because we've been trying to cover everyone and we, there <laughs> only have been a few <laughs> we're so we're trying <laughs> yes um so I think another another reason that I wanted to bring up this review is that because it just shows the t- how the times change. Because if this letter was written about a horror film today, they would have this everywhere. This would be on the back of the DVD. This would be on the website. This would be quoted in the trailer. This is exactly the kind of marketing that horror films want these days. You know, if you think about. Um, when The Exorcist came out, a lot of the promotion and the trailers mentioned, like, people passed out in the screenings. So, like, ambulances had to be stationed outside of movie theaters that were showing The Exorcist and, you know, paranormal activity. A lot of the trailers for those films would include, like, night vision footage of audiences reacting to the film. So, screaming and stuff like that and I also Mm -hmm. have read critics reviews of like Lars von Trier screenings at like film festivals where they'll mention like oh people stormed out because of how disturbing the film was so those things today are worn as like badges of honor by horror Mm -hmm. films Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's another really interesting cultural shift
0: yeah yeah absolutely I agree with that. Um, so.
1: Yeah, but in terms of its reception and um, what, we, <laughs> what we were talking about earlier, the, the tease from earlier about um, the relationship between this film and, um, and London After Midnight. Um, London After Midnight was another film directed by Todd Browning. Um, And that film was released in 1927. It was um, a a near-identical plot. So it's described as... um, This is the basic plot for London After Midnight. Roger Balfour is found dead in his London home. Burke, a representative of Scotland, Scotland Yard, after questioning everyone present, declares the death a suicide, despite objection from Balfour's neighbor and close friend. Five years later... The Hamlin residents witnessed strange lights with the now forsaken Balfour Mansion before within the now forsaken mansion before realizing the new tenants to be two vampiric figures, of a man with a beaver felt top hat, long hair, and sharp teeth, and a silent pale woman wearing long robes. Um, so a similar kind of thing of like a series of violent attacks um happens and then it turns out that the vampires are not vampires and that they are in fact actors who have been hired to ferret out this ruse um and for a similar reason there's a man who wanted to marry this guy's daughter and that wasn't going to happen so he killed him so that he could kind of try to make that happen on his own um but what's most significant about this film is that it has been completely lost to time. Um, The last known copy of the film was destroyed in the 1965 MGM vault fire. Um, And so this film is like highly sought after because of that. And um, one thing that's pretty cool is that in 2002, Turner Classic Movies aired a reconstructed version um, produced by um, Richard schmidlin um (laughs) using the original script and numerous film stills so he used like hundreds of stills um yeah Mm. and he and also the script and um there was also you know scoring done by an orchestra um and so and and that you can't really access the reconstructed version that was like a special screening i think there was like a museum exhibit um but I looked into like where you can find that reconstruction. And I don't think that we would like have ready, I don't think we'd be able to readily access that. Um, Mm, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting that this is a a director remaking his own work. Um, Yes.
0: And also um, quick fun fact, but the actor who played the vampire in London after midnight was none other than Lon Chaney, who was um, the first choice to play Dracula in the 1931 film
1: before he passed, I believe. Yes. So. It's a small, small world. <laughs> <laughs>
0: a small world, and we, you know, now you know that Lon Chaney did in fact, play a vampire in his time. He made uh, it happen. He made it happen. He's like, I, I played Quasimodo, I played the fan of the opera, I gotta do a vampire. Um,
1: yeah, but it's interesting that this film is really famous for being a remake of another film that we can no longer access. And Yeah, so yeah.
0: in a way that makes it an original, at least for us, because, yeah. well, we have nothing to compare it to, but it's, yeah. yeah, that is interesting. And
1: yeah. yeah, It's also interesting in terms of this idea of iterative work. Um because this was something that came up with Vampire, because mm. the the guy, he showed so many cuts of it, he showed it under yeah. different titles, it kind mm-hmm. of had a m- multiple lives, where it had its release, and right. oh god, he was like chased out of the theater or something, and she, then, she, yeah. yeah, and then it got, and then it kind of had a life on the circus, kind mm. of circuit,
0: yeah. you know? Yeah, it's kind of almost like I get the sense it was like it's called like House of Horrors or House of Hell and it's like sort of was repackaged as like this B-horror film?
1: Um, Yes.
0: Strangely. Um, Yeah, so. Yeah, uh,
1: so this idea of you know, because we don't really have that happen nowadays. Um, Like directors really wait until they can do it the way that they i mean if you're powerful enough to do that you'll sit on an idea um for a long time until you can do it right but like audiences i just don't think are receptive to that idea of like oh yeah we'll give you another shot we'll buy a ticket to the same movie again four years later um mm-hmm. or i guess it would have been more than four years but it, closer to seven years i, I think um So, yeah, and just also this idea of, like, the sedimentary nature of of a subgenre like this where there are so many similarities across these films to the degree that Mm -hmm. it's, like, hard to keep them straight at times. Um, Yeah. But other kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff. um, Another fun fact is that you have talked a lot about Luna and the character of Luna and the kind of standard that she set in terms of her look and just um the future vampire women vampires that we see um her costume was designed by adrian just adrian he was the same designer who worked on the wizard of oz um. Ooh. Yes, he was deeply, deeply famous So famous that he was just like a monomer Kind of, you know, no last <laughs> yeah. name necessary mm-hmm. Everyone knew who Adrian was Um, And this costume set the standard for future female vampire characters
0: Yes, I knew it Yeah I love that so much
1: Yeah, and it's also very cool that, that they got such a famous person Yeah To do this And it also it- just is a statement on how important costume design is.
0: Yes, absolutely. I, yeah, I I feel like a costume design is an underappreciated area in filmmaking, but yeah, it's so important. And that's really cool. I always kind of like seeing how um, big names appear in films that are, you Mm -hmm. know, outside of their typical genre or just one that they wouldn't be in because it's not as big high budget or prestige like for instance i remember i was watching the holiday the cute little christmas movie with um cameron cameron diaz and kate winslet and it just said music by hans zimmer and i was like excuse me
1: (laughs) hans he's everywhere
0: including your nora efron or nancy Meyer, one of the two um romantic comedies so
1: yes um oh okay i damn i'm we are like jumping around a bit because i just remembered um s- uh, other things other s- some other interesting things mm-hmm. about um well but you were you correctly identified that, that this was an iconic look that that went on to define the way that we ch- did these characters for mm-hmm. a while to come and like you're saying those traces still remain Like, even up to, you know, like, what we do in the shadows, we still have long, dark haired, very pale, bold makeup, kind of Mm -hmm. long gowns, um, like, you know, female vampires that that look that way. Um, Mm. But kind of other sort of story details that I thought were interesting, um, we talked a bit about some of the like subtext um especially in that moment where rena gets down on her knees and which is even more interesting to think about when you realize that she wasn't actually hypnotized (laughs) she was just kind of doing that yeah um, that was unscripted um so when some of the historical stuff we have about this film the runtime was listed as being 80 minutes but the film is actually only 60 minutes um Mm. So it's estimated that, but then some people say that was a typo. So at least 10 minutes of footage was cut from this film, possibly 20. Um, And there are some, yeah, there are some theories about this. Um, So some people believe that, yes, this was based on London after midnight, but that um, some, some subplots were added. And so, At the very beginning, we talked about that wound on Lugosi's temple, you know, Mm -hmm. where he has this really noticeable, like, blood splatter on his temple that never Mm -hmm. gets explained. Um, Some people believe that that was a subplot in which it's revealed or implied that... um, that that character had an incestuous relationship with Luna and that oh. he killed himself out of guilt by shooting himself in the head and that Holy that is how shit. he yes and that that is how he yes and that's how he Jesus. became a vampire um and so at the time this would have been completely as you can as I'm sure yeah, you know no. completely unacceptable no, no way in no. hell it, um, at
0: least not in any explicit way
1: Yes. So people think that even the, that there might've been some implications of that, um, within the story and that even those were considered too extreme and they were removed from Mm -hmm. the film, which is something that, that you've brought up and that we've talked about in the past as well as, as, you know, studios, like you've talked about like some screams being cut and, um, Mm -hmm. from Dracula, I believe. And, yes. You know, like some some removing some shots where like a murder happens or or other mm-hmm. kinds of violence like that. Yeah. Um, so. That was one theory about it, um, and let me see if there are other kinds of um, theories about about that blood mark because some people contest that. You know. Um, yes. So. Yeah. So some people think that it was that maybe the suicide thing was true, but not the incest thing or, you know, there's some disagreement there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems clear that there was some sort of subplot that explained the wound on the Lugosi character's forehead and mm-hmm. that that was removed because of um because of the code and because of standards right. at the time yeah. so i get what do you think do you think that that do you believe that that would have been part of it
0: i mean i i'm kind of inclined to i'm inclined to at least believe his character's backstory would have involved possibly suicide just given the position of the wound and how it's on yeah. the temple yeah So yes, I could I could see that being um, a re- uh, a part of the character's backstory, and you know, for obvious reasons that would have been cut. Um, you know, the incestuous relationship with his daughter. I don't know. I'm I'm mm-hmm. curious where that theory came from. If it was like from you know actual onset or like people who were there during like yeah. the filmmaking or um, screenwriting. So yeah, hard to say. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, I actually thought you were going to say that some of the footage they cut was due to possibly um, there being too much of a, a queer or homoerotic undertone with the Luna or it was the female vampire. Was it Luna?
1: Luna. Yeah, it's Irina and Luna. With,
0: with Irina and Luna, which I could also see them doing as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So... There. Okay, so I'm seeing who has alleged. It. So film historian um, Gregory William Mank mm. um, says that the alleged incest subplot was never in the shooting script and never filmed. Though he acknowledges that it was likely hinted at in the original scenario, like the treatment written by the scriptwriter guy and endor and, Dor, and um okay and this is backed up by borland who um plays who plays luna in the film um
0: oh okay um, yes so okay i all right i'm more inclined to believe now it sounds like the series yeah. relatively substantiated so was this when the film was still going to have the it was all a ruse at the end because yeah wow that is like some <laughs> actor method deep character like yeah actually Bela had his actor's journal and was like writing the whole history of his character
1: Yeah, this, is, this raises some... Okay, because it goes on to say, Lugosi biographer Arthur Lenig asserts that Endor did originally intend an incest backstory, but that it was removed by the studio before the shooting script was written, though he goes on to claim that a cut line of dialogue indicates that Count Mora... Oh, he has had the name the whole time. Count Mora shot himself after strangling his daughter. Um, so you're right that this raises... And I mean, this is like what this this film is really like. It raises the question of like when mm-hmm. the whole their actors pretending to be vampires idea was introduced.
0: Yeah, and I I could see that happening pro- possibly when Todd Browning was brought on because it sounds like it was written. It, there's a different screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, Todd Browning did not write this, so probably in the original screenplay or pitch. This was not supposed to be a, oh, and it was all just a, a ruse, but maybe when Todd Browning got the script, he was like, hey, maybe I could kind of just make this into a London After Midnight remake.
1: Yeah, so there, there, and I don't have, you know, I don't have, like, the full timeline on who was brought in when and, mm-hmm. you know, all of those things, um, because... You know, that really varies movie to movie. And, you know, this was also this was kind of like the, the studio system, like films were just mm-hmm. made like the creative aspect, the creative aspects of making a film were just done so differently than they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's hard for me to um, to tell Because I would, especially because so many people have backed this up, and there is something to the way that Count Mora watches Luna in the film. I do believe that there could have been an incest kind of subplot there. You know, like, that moment where he watches her feed on Irina. Like, there does seem to be some sort of, like... His satisfaction seems so deep that it feels erotic mm-hmm. on a level, so. Yes,
0: I agree with that. And, like, again, like you said, the actors didn't know the ending, mm-hmm. so you have to take, like, at all those scenes, these actors are playing it straight. Like, Baila yes. believes he's playing a vampire, and that's his vampire daughter, so yeah. I have to believe that it certainly influenced his choices. And like you said, he's watching in a very, um, you know, kind of, um, satisfied or like titillated kind of way. Yes. So, yeah. There is an erotic component.
1: Yeah, and they have the, the way they move their bodies so similarly. Like they're they touch each other sometimes. Like not weirdly, but you know they have physical yeah. contact. Um. So and, and also like the way that Luna watches Arena through her window and stuff. Like there's there is an eroticism there. Mm-hmm. I think. Right. Um. So yeah and i mean i think that those were a lot of the things that Mm -hmm. um unless we wanted to talk more about the fire we could talk about we could talk about the fire the mgm fire of 1965
0: (laughs) oh my goodness please tell us about the 1965 fire at mgm yes
1: so this is um this is as we mentioned um That this film is kind of, you know, maybe a kind of silent remake of, not literally silent, but like an unacknowledged remake of the film London After Midnight, which was lost um, forever in a fire, specifically the MGM vault fire of 1965, um, which happened on August 10th. And so basically, like the story of that is that... um, MGM had like a big lot as big studios still do. So an electrical short ignited a fire in vault seven of lot three on MGM's back lot located in Culver City. Mm -hmm. And so the vaults were essentially concrete bunkers um, with no windows. Mm -hmm. And so each vault had a small fan at the top and that was the only ventilation there were no Mm. sprinkler systems um and so i think because the assumption was just you know what do we need that for there's just stuff in there um Mm. and so but it, it does feel because Film was so famously flammable <laughs> it does yes seem, well it was made um, of
0: a, a celluloid film so
1: yeah i think we would have been at the celluloid point we probably weren't doing like silver nitrate anymore
0: yeah i think it was the silver nitrate one that has like a, a guaranteed expiration date of 100 years i think so
1: uh-huh
0: it's like any films made on silver nitrate yes.
1: Well, for, yeah, I guess just for people who are interested, I figured we could talk about this just because people might not know about, because we're in this early film period, I figured it would be interesting to talk about just from a, you know, we are doing, this is a kind of archival project. Um, Archival work is something that is relevant to every art field. And it has a really interesting role to play in the world of film because you might think, oh well, the film as a technology is less than one hundred and thirty years old. Um, what do we need to archive? Um, well, <laughs> a lot, <laughs> um, yeah. because film is um, film stock is very unstable because it was you know meant to chemically react to light. Um, So, you know, a common statistic that we hear is that 90, we've lost 90% of early film, we've lost 90% of um, silent film. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did not know this until pretty recently. But the reason one of the big reasons that that's the case is that at the time, we did, like this was a lowbrow art. Film was a for the, at the beginning, film was lowbrow. It was something that poor people who couldn't afford to go to the theater did, um, and we didn't perceive films as having really any long term cultural value. So as, as soon as a film was done with its theatrical run, it was burned, um, mm. and like you can see photos of people burning massive bins of film Mm. just dumping reels hundreds and hundreds of feet of film which is so shocking to imagine today it's like Mm -hmm. chilling to like Mm -hmm. picture someone burning thousands of feet of film stock that you know um partially because how expensive it is um but film is also really difficult to preserve um and so you know like You really need it to be in a temperature-controlled, humidity-controlled, lightless environment. Um, So this vault fire is actually one of several significant vault fires that have happened at film studios in America. Um, But it's it's really sad. Um, Everything in the vault was lost. They had multiple vaults. This is Vault 7 of... Mm -hmm. more than seven (laughs) Mm -hmm. and um the but the explosion um did kill one person um and it destroyed Mm -hmm. hundreds of films and many Mm -hmm. of them were it was the only copy um yeah so in addition to you know loss from the historical record someone also died um Mm -hmm. which is really terrible as well um yes yeah, and but one thing that I think is interesting is that MGM, in relation to this whole idea of films not preserving their work, MGM at the time was one of the only studios that kept a vault of its work at all um, mm-hmm. because at the time it was the custom to destroy things. So mm-hmm. it's really sad that MGM was going to the unique effort of holding on to things and they still due to lack of, um, lack of OSHA protections, <laughs> um, they still had this accident, which is so the story of the film industry, that, that mm. safety corners are cut, that, that assumptions are made about things that could and can't, could, could and will or won't go wrong, um, But Mm -hmm. yeah, so the severity, so like the building was destroyed, there was a big explosion, there was this fire, it took a while to put out, um, but MGM did retain 68% of its catalog. Um, But that's still a big loss, you know, they still lost quite a lot of stuff. Um, And Mm -hmm. similar fires have occurred. So a couple decades beforehand, Fox had a vault fire in 1937, and then Universal Mm. Studios had a fire in 2008 that also destroyed um, an attraction at their amusement park. Mm. Um, But that fault fire also lost a lot of masters of music. So there was a lot of music affected by that fault fire as well. Um, Yeah. So, thank yeah.
0: Yeah, Thank you so much for just, no, like, sharing this very important history. And um, that shouldn't you know, be forgotten. And it's like, not to sound dramatic when I say that or anything, but, you know, I think, you know, film history, or film as a medium, we forget how much of a kind of baby genre it is. Yeah. And so it, it, it within the context of what you've just described from like a historical perspective, you know, when a new medium is introduced, like, you, you don't know necessarily, like, what it will evolve into. So the fact that they're just, like, burning all of these fields yeah. of film um, just kind of shows, uh, reflects the regard that film was held in mm-hmm. at the time, and now it's just, it's one of the most profitable and successful mediums in all of human history. Yes.
1: Um, yeah, and it's, like, it does sound a bit dramatic, but I think it's heartbreaking to, yeah. you know, that we have so little of the the earliest days mm-hmm. of you know it's sort of like uh, like if you were a parent like burning all of your kids like yeah. I mean like
0: we have to construct our understanding of film history and film as a media from like what scraps we have mm-hmm.
1: yeah it's true and so much of the work the film historians do is going through playbills going through newspapers mm-hmm. for yeah, the reviews. advertisements mm-hmm. the reviews um records kept financial records kept by studios um there are so many silent films where all we have is the title of the film and the Mm -hmm. director and maybe someone who starred in it um and so it's you know it's sort of like a kind of picture like a whole wing of the louvre burning down you know like that would be a real loss um Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah it's like and maybe these films weren't you know like Oppenheimer or you know some other you know some really really high concept really fancy films but um like you're saying film and television is the primary medium through which people experience storytelling in this day Mm -hmm. and age like people are not reading books the way they used to they're not going to movie theaters the way they used to um so the fact that we have so little record of the origins of this deeply powerful art form, um, is sad, especially when you think about, like, one thing that I think about a lot when I think about why I love to study film is just how young it is, like, you know, this podcast, we're start we're doing like 127 years, like, we're starting from 127 years in the past, When you think about how old something like painting is, we have paintings that are hundreds of, you know, like thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. We have pottery that is millennia old, you know. So to think that we have, you know, like, I mean, and knock on wood about how long humanity will be around just with the way the planet is looking. <laughs> but, you know, like you think yeah. about a thousand years from now, like, what are we going to have of film and television the way that we have of paintings and pottery and mm-hmm. music and other art forms today mm-hmm. from, from so long ago? Um, you know, we are at the explosive inception of an art form, and it's really incredible to think, like, things have changed so much in comparatively mm-hmm. such a small amount of time.
0: Mm-hmm i'm softly clapping right now <laughs> that was beautiful
1: <laughs> thank you
0: and I'm, I'm glad you could give such an impassioned speech in the context of the market the vampire
1: <laughs> it is Mark of the vampire doesn't deserve my speech about the beauty of this art form <laughs> and the legacy of film um,
0: but maybe it does
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean that—that that kind of is what we're saying here—is is that yeah. um, it all matters. It it all it, it, is that's important. True. Yeah, yeah. And um. this was maybe a silly <laughs> little film, but people put yeah. like their blood, sweat, and tears into this, the same as Oppenheimer. They did.
0: That very true. Um, all right, so I guess we can probably wrap up here. Did we have any other final thoughts?
1: I think the only we've identified a favorite moment from each film. Um, yeah yeah so if you want to identify your favorite moment
0: definitely the first time we see the count and his daughter um and they're in the castle and she's like slowly walking down the stairs and we see the cobweb mm-hmm. I just love the atmosphere of it and mm-hmm. I thought it was really great
1: yes i think that's a that's a that's a good one to choose um yeah, you like cobwebs. There's been a few times that I've been like, the cobwebs were hitting. <laughs> um, well, they're
0: so big in these movies. It's like Party City, huge. Yes. cobwebs everywhere.
1: Yes, the the fantasy, the the glamour. Yes, exactly. Um, yes, go big or go yes. home. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there were there were I think that there were a lot of moments that stood out to me i think mm-hmm. i'm gonna be silly this time because i think for the past i've been like this beautiful shot touched yeah. me um yeah. i'm gonna say when they shot at the bat <laughs> when they tried to kill a bat with a gun <laughs> that's a great one yes
0: oh uh, well all right yeah so that
1: was yes the,
0: of the vampire
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of This Podcast Sucks.
0: Find us where you get your podcasts on Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube. Follow us on social media and give us a like.
1: You can find us at ThatVampirePod on Twitter and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you guys. And remember, stay bloodthirsty.
0: Catch our next episode on Frank Stryer's Condemned to Live.